The end of the calendar year is a big deal for book lovers. Newspapers and magazines release their rankings for the best reads of the year. Holiday shoppers hunt through bookshops to find the perfect gifts for friends and family. And lots of people set new reading goals to start working on in January. But as universally loved as books seem to be, they aren't always universally accessible. Today, we're talking with two New Yorkers who are working to change that. Hi, I'm Abby Delk, and this is Cityscape. In a moment, we'll meet Latanya Devon, who started a mobile bookstore to make affordable books more readily available to Bronx neighborhoods. And later, we'll talk with Victoria Law, who helped found Books Through Bars NYC. It's a New York City nonprofit that sends books to people who are incarcerated across the country. The people who write to Books Through Bars are people who want to use their time to somehow not only pass the time, but also to improve themselves in some ways, which jails and prisons are often not set up to do. Our first guest is Latanya Devon. She's a Bronx native who noticed the lack of independent booksellers in her borough. And instead of setting up a traditional storefront, she runs her bookshop out of a bus. She says every Bronx neighborhood deserves a bookstore, even if just for a day. Latanya, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So you recently opened your mobile bookstore in the Bronx. What significance did bookstores and reading have for you growing up? I was raised by an educator. And my grandmother would come home and she would read to her um, neighbors that couldn't read. So sometimes people would come in with like their prescriptions from the doctor or their new lease or cable bill. So I knew from early on, from early an early age that um, reading was important. Um, my aunt would also take me to the Strand bookstore as a kid. I would come home with more books that I can carry. When she moved to New Jersey, we would go to um, garage sales and I would buy books there too. So reading has always been important to me. Do you remember having a favorite book or favorite book series as a kid? So I was really young reading a series that I don't think I should have been reading. But um, <laughs> I was reading V.C. Andrews. It's a really old um, series. They're probably new books, but it's like you follow the family through like incest and then their offsprings have their own books and it just keeps going and going. I don't know if I was interested in it per se, like, um, but it was definitely entertaining in what was available. So if you read one book, you'd probably want to know what happened to the next. And it wasn't because I, I, I really enjoyed it. It was just very interesting to me, their family structure and how things went. And then one, I ventured off into Stephen King and I scared the bejesus out of myself because again, I was too young reading Pet Cemetery, And um, I closed it. I don't know what passage I read, but I couldn't even look at the cover without being scared. Like I just closed the book. So I have to ask, why a bus? What, where did the idea come from to start Bronx Bound Books? I've always wanted to own a bookstore, but gentrification is happening to the Bronx and like everywhere in New York City, probably all over the country. But um, owning a bookstore was just not feasible. The rents were just ridiculously high when I started to look for the rents, um, rent prices. So my friend Vanessa showed me a book truck 
And she said, look, you don't have to have a storefront. Look, there's a book truck. And she showed me it. And from that point on, all I needed was that little bit of inspiration to see that a bookstore did not need to be in uh, brick and mortar. So I know that you experienced some delays opening the physical store. What were some challenges that uh, arose as you were in the process of creating Bronxbound Books? So finding someone to even do the construction of converting the bus into a bookstore. I searched on YouTube, I've Googled searched and things like that. And it was just really hard. Um, people didn't have, it was during the pandemic also, people didn't want to like just take a chance on something that they've never done. Um, so I got a lot of notes, I got a lot of like, mm, this sounds really cool, but we don't do that work. I believe in searching within your community before you stepping out. So I searched outside my community, but the people that renovated the bus was right in my backyard. But um, they took a long time <laughs> to finish the, the renovation. Originally, the bus was supposed to be renovated with in two to four weeks, and they took 90 days. I kept a part of that story to myself and to my immediate friends. And my friend Lashana, Lashana Harris said, you know, you should tell your story. Let people know why the delay is happening. You're carrying all this guilt. But um, as long as you're transparent, you know, the community will understand. And then I put a post up. And from that one post, other people saw it. And it landed to New York One doing a story on it. So it taught me a valuable lesson in being transparent, especially when you're raising money with the community for a community project. You'd be surprised how helpful they want they, they would want to be. So all they needed to do was know that I was going through this struggle and they, they pitched in. And what has the community response been since you've actually been able to open the physical store? It's been great. Um, people have been asking, hey, what do you need? The community has really been supportive, um, getting a lot of requests from around the city, not only from the Bronx. Um, people have been donating books because we are a new and used bookstore. We're like the Strand bookstore meets Tiny House on Wheels. Again, when I was going through the struggle of just telling people at farmer's markets, hey, the bus will be here next week or the bus will be finished in a week or two. Um, and when I finally realized that it would not be done in the time that I was quoted, you know, I felt, I felt down, you know, and I felt a little ashamed that, you know, I'm telling the community that, the bus will be done by a certain amount of time. And it wasn't. And it wasn't until someone in my community said, you know, you're doing something great and the community will wait. So you mentioned the need for Bronxbound Books. For you, why was it so important to get another independent bookstore in the Bronx? I believe that every neighborhood deserves a bookstore, even if it's just for one day. I feel like um, it's part of community, having a bookstore. Libraries are great. I believe in book ownership to having the books available to you when you want to read it, not in those two weeks or two to three weeks that you have from the library, even though they've waived the, the fees, but you still have to bring the books back. So I believe in owning books and passing down books and things like that. Um, making books affordable was something that was important to me as well. Growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. By no means were we like, you know, truly, truly poor. I don't want to like, you know, elaborate on my, my circumstances as a kid, but we did grow up in the, in the housing projects and money for books just wasn't part of the daily budget, you know, or going to the bookstore wasn't part of the daily budget or, or route. We would go to school, <laughs> we would go to the park and things like that, but making that extra trip to the bookstore just wasn't, you know, an everyday thing. 
So if I can be in a different community every single day in the Bronx, you know, maybe someone can stop and, and, and purchase a book at an affordable price as well. And books that we truly wanted. So a lot of our books are um, new and used. They're used, but they have great value. In 2019, when I first started, I would give away books for free and I would listen to what they wanted, what they actually wanted from a bookstore. So that was how I did my market research. So when people come into the bookstore, some people say, wow, this is the bookstore I always wanted when I was a kid, or this is the bookstore that I wanted for my children. I'm by no means a perfect space. <laughs> you know, there's so much more for me to grow, but I'm really happy that people come in and they just sit down and want to read. So when people come in, what's the atmosphere like on the bus? Is it cramped? How much space is there? It's a tiny bookstore, but um, about four or five people at a time. I try to keep it so that um, the families can can shop together or friends groups, because sometimes friends come together. The space is pretty wide. It's about four feet in between each shelf. Standing, if you're 6'4", you're good. Anything over that, you might have to crouch down a little bit. But even the tallest person feels like there's so much space in it. And um, of course, it's because of the way the shelves are structured and the colors I chose. The colors are dedicated to the Bronx flag. It's um, navy blue, orange. I didn't use white because white is just hard to keep clean, but I use like a tan color. But the tan color is for the ceiling and the floors, making it feel like it's bigger. And I keep the back door open to circulate air and you can see the outside, so you don't feel like you can't, you know, you're feeling claustrophobic. So it's pretty um, spacious. And then in terms of the actual books that you have, how many can you normally fit on the bus for customers to shop? So we have opportunity for you to shop inside and outside the bus. And I bring about 3,000 books out. And you mentioned um, that you've been listening to feedback for a while now about the kinds of books that people want to read. So what goals did you have in mind when stocking your shelves? Um, Bringing in bilingual books, books in other languages, and those go quickly. I cannot keep them on the shelf. (laughs) They go really fast, Um, specifically Spanish and English books um, that are bilingual. How can listeners learn more about Bronx-bound books and visit the bus sometime? So you can follow us on Instagram. We usually have a weekly to monthly calendar. Lately, we've been doing a lot of um, private events where someone rents the bus out for a certain amount and for a certain amount of hours, and they are able to make all, I'm able to make all the books in the bus for free. So we partnered with Kingsbridge Unidos. Um, Thank you, Jessica Wolford, who um, sponsored our visit to a shelter in Kingsbridge where, um, the bus was rented and all the books on the bus were available for the customers to shop for free. I think to go off that question, how besides selling books, do you want Bronx Bound Books to partner with the community? So if you're an arts organization, we love to do um, paint parties inspired by books and book covers, um, parent engagement events to talk to the parents about engaging with um, engaging their children with books, partnering with schools for book fairs. Um, We have a few lined up. We have a few um, community organizations who are, you know, ready to partner with us when when time permits. After opening Bronx Bound Books and going through this whole process of getting it out and rolling on the streets, what would you say you're the proudest of? 
I am the most proud of the fact that the people in the Bronx do want to read. There's this big myth about whether or not kids want to read, kids in the Bronx specifically. I think there's always a misconception from generation to generation about the younger generation, like, oh, they're into their tablets and, oh, they're into their phones. But you know what? I've been meeting so many people, so many children, adults, families that have a great value in reading. So they value books. They, they value reading. So I debunk that myth every single time I'm out. All right, LaTanya. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. You can catch up with Bronx Brown Books by finding them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. For many people who are incarcerated, time in prison presents an opportunity to take more time to engage with reading material than they could before. Unfortunately, many prison libraries aren't able to properly meet inmate needs. That's where Books Through Bars NYC comes in. Victoria Law helped found the organization, which sends free books to people in prisons all over the United States. She's talking with us about why making books actually accessible for people in prisons matters so much. So, Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So, you're a co-founder of NYC Books Through Bars. When did you first become involved in activism on behalf of incarcerated people? I began... uh, becoming involved in activism around incarcerated people when I was in high school. Several friends of mine joined gangs, dropped out of high school, subsequently got arrested for gang-related activity, and went to were sent to Rikers Island, which is a large island jail complex um, in New York City for people awaiting trial. And these were friends who were not particularly interested in reading before they went to jail, but then ended up Uh, becoming very interested in books and reading as a way to pass the time and temporarily escape the chaos at Rikers. So fast forward to maybe one year later, I was in my first year of college and I had already began participating in some prison support groups and people were talking about setting up a books through bars group in New York City, specifically to send books to people in jails and prisons across the nation and remembering how much books had meant to my friends, even though they on the outside had not been readers, I very enthusiastically signed up to help start this group. That's interesting to me. You, you think that your friends who had been incarcerated, they sort of found reading uh, while they were in prison? I think that they, without all of the distractions on the outside and without teachers telling them to read books that they had no interest in and that they did not relate at all to their lives. And the fact that uh, jails like Rikers Island and many other jails don't offer anything else to do. Um, They found books to be something that they could use to mentally and emotionally escape the chaos and violence of being in jail, to temporarily escape the wide open what if that happens when you're in jail awaiting trial and you don't know what your future will hold. Um, And then they realized that they actually did enjoy reading and being able to escape into a story or learn new things through books and literature. Now, when you were helping to start the NYC chapter of Books Through Bars, did Mm -hmm. you find any challenges in getting the organization up and running? Um, Well, 
the one of the first challenges I encountered was this was the first time I had ever tried to start an organization. I was 19 years old. I had very little organizing and activism experience under my belt. Um, I had never started a group before. Um, so I didn't really, I had a lot of, but I had a lot of enthusiasm. So I didn't really go about starting the group in a way that probably would have made sense, which was to build the group up and then let people know, people in prison know that we existed. And instead what we started doing was we started placing um, announcements in different prison publications, specifically those geared towards women and youth, um, letting them know that this program existed and they could write and request that we send them free books. And so we started getting letters before there was actually an infrastructure in which to deal with these letters. So what ended up happening is I would be filling letters kind of piecemeal and haphazardly, or I would ask other people to do so. Um, originally, Books Through Bars was run out of Blackout Books, which was a small anarchist bookstore on the Lower East Side. So I would ask people who were working a volunteer shift if they would want to fill some requests while they were sitting at the counter and keeping the bookstore open. And many of them did. Uh, they very were very enthusiastic about it. But again, it wasn't an organized endeavor. It was more, we got letters and we figured out how to fill them on the fly. Not, we built up a volunteer base. We, you know, had uh, packing sessions, which happens now where people come and there are dedicated times and there's somebody to train people as to how you send books. And given the myriad restrictions around books that vary not only state by state, but prison to prison uh, might mean like this prison can only get paperbacks. This prison can only get new paperbacks. This one won't accept something that is slightly yellow because they fear that they've been sprayed with drugs and people will get high off of this yellowing paperback book. Uh, so, you know, ways in which people were trained at that time, there was no training. It was just, here are some letters, let's try to fill them. Now, you mentioned some restrictions that a lot of prisons have in place about the books inmates receive. How do you communicate that to the people who are volunteering with you and donating books to the organization? Well, now there is a massive list of restrictions that uh, that we have. So when somebody gets the mail and Books Through Bars New York City now gets something like 4,000 letters per month. I'm so glad we did not start with 4,000 letters per month. Um, Somebody goes through these letters and actually, uh, you know, writes on the envelope, like what the restrictions are. So there's a giant restrictions list and somebody sorts through the mail and does the tiresome, tedious and very important job of saying only paperback or must include invoice or, you know, cannot get yellowed books or, you know, no disallowed. And then separately for Texas prisons, there is a binder with a list of books that Texas has banned. And these range from things like uh, gay and lesbian literature, books addressing sexual violence and trauma to, uh, to novels. Um, and there's, you know, sort of like no rhyme or reason other than, you know, the fact that most of this tends to be uh, more progressive uh, literature or it talks about race issues or it tries to address sexual violence and sexual trauma. Um, so somebody, again, goes through all of these and marks them on the envelope so that the volunteers can look at the envelope and say, okay, 
this person can only get paperbacks. And then you read the letter and it might say, dear books through bars, I would like a dictionary, a book about history and a mystery novel. And then you can, you know, what types of books or what condition of books you can send in. And then you have an idea as to what the person is interested in. So you mentioned, um, for instance, the restrictions that you've seen in Texas prisons. What do you make of Mm -hmm. um, the limits that some prisons put on the genres and book topics that are allowed to come into the prison? I think that it is another way for prisons to keep information out of prisons because they're not censoring. For instance, Texas allows Hitler's Mein Kampf in. And you would think, if anything, if you were going to have restrictions on content, you would not want Mein Kampf to be circulating in your prison system. But they have not censored Mein Kampf, but they have censored numerous books about uh, Black civil rights organizing and Black history as saying that it promotes racial division and incites um, and intends to incite race riots. Uh, in the early days of Books Through Bars, there was a comic book called World War Three Illustrated, and they donated, I don't know, two or three giant boxes of comics, and we would send those in because they were lightweight. You could add, you know, send two books plus a comic. Somebody would have something fun to read. And one issue was banned in Texas because there was one square that depicted a schoolyard fight. And it was between a black kid and a white kid. And that one square, I think the comic wasn't even about race relations. It was just something about somebody's high school experience. But that one square got that entire issue banned because they said it promoted racial division and was instigating a race riot. Books that, uh, you know, uh, that, that prop up white supremacy don't seem to get the same type of scrutiny that a comic book that has one square that depicts a fight between a black kid and a white kid, or uh, a book like The Color Purple, or books about you know uh, civil rights organizing. What kinds of books do you see um, incarcerated people wanting to read when they write to your organization? Are there any common titles or genres that seem to be really capturing people's interest right now? The most commonly requested book is a dictionary. And that has been consistent since Books Through Bars started in 1996 till today. Um, In the past, we often had an envelope where we would put dictionary requests in because we didn't have enough dictionaries to ever meet the need. Now that Books Through Bars has grown and become more organized and has people who are uh, financially, you know, willing to donate dictionaries or the, for the uh, money for the cost of dictionaries, we're able to order dictionaries in bulk at a discount to be able to send to people. So we don't have a backlog of 100 people wanting dictionaries and trying to figure out when we get one dictionary donated, who gets that dictionary. So what we see is people wanting to use their, the people who write to books through bars are people who want to use their time to somehow not only pass the time, but also to improve themselves in some ways, which jails and prisons are often not set up to do. I mean, in 2020, the Bureau of Prisons, which is responsible for all of the the nation's federal prisons, said that there were 16,400 people on their waiting list for prison literacy programs. So this is just a basic literacy program and you have over 16,000 people on that waiting list. And Prison programs are small, they're hard to get into, they're only run once in a while. With the coronavirus pandemic still raging through jails and prisons, they're often not run at all. 
So people turn to programs like Books Through Bars and other Books to Prisoners programs across the nation, of which there are over 50 currently, to try to self-educate themselves. Or they might try to, you know, educate themselves and maybe teach their roommate who may not be able to read or write or for whom English is not a first language to say like, hey, let's try to do this together. And here's a dictionary. Here's a tool that we can use. So I know your organization sends books directly to inmates rather than prison libraries. Could you explain why mm-hmm. that is? For one thing, not there is no national mandate that says that every prison has to have a library. New York State, where um, where Books Through Bars New York City is located, um, does have a library in every one of its prisons, but not everyone has access to that library. So the library might only have hours that work for people who are not in prison programs or who are not required to work certain prison jobs where their hours might conflict with the library. Um, people who are in some sort of restricted housing, whether it's solitary confinement, which for listeners who don't know what that is, imagine being locked in a very small bathroom for 23 to 24 hours each day with absolutely nothing except a bed, a toilet, and a sink. Um, And oftentimes people in solitary confinement cannot get access to the library. Um, The library is supposed to send a book cart around the prison, but they often do not, whether it's because of short staffing or indifference, um, varies from place to place, but they don't have access to that um, as well. And oftentimes the library may not have the books that they want. We also get a lot of requests for books about um, Black history or Chicano or uh, Latinx history. And these are books that prison libraries typically don't carry. So people use uh, books through bars programs not just to request books that allow them to mentally and emotionally escape prisons through reading mysteries or fantasies or novels, but again, also to figure out what did I miss? You know, what did my, whatever time I had in school not teach me? And how do I learn more about myself and my community and my identity? Do the incarcerated people you send books to ever follow up with the organization? What sort of feedback do you get from the people you serve? Um, Every once in a while, we get letters, thank you notes from people who are incarcerated, who have received books. And they, you know, often say how much books mean to them or what they've done with the books. Oftentimes, there's a follow up request to say, I really enjoyed this book. I remember several years ago, receiving a letter from a woman incarcerated in Oklahoma. And I sent her a book. It was, I think, a memoir of a Muslim girl who is growing up in a small town post 9-11 and what it meant to be Muslim and a girl, you know, in this era in which Muslims were considered terrorists and suspects. And I sent it, you know, just thinking, okay, this fits what she's looking for and it fits the condition of book that she is allowed to receive. And she wrote back and said, I had never, I've never met a Muslim person. I live in Oklahoma. I'm incarcerated in Oklahoma. I never thought about anything past what, you know, the conservative mainstream news told me about Muslims being scary people that we have to be, you know, beware of. And I never thought of this. And I really thank you for opening my eyes to the fact that, I mean, it, it's rather simplistic, but Muslims are people too. But it was a way that opened up her eyes. Um, one of the most touching and heartbreaking letters we received was in 2002 
where we received a thank you letter from a man who had been on Texas's death row, who had gotten books um, from us. And one month before his execution, he wrote us a brief note, which said, I would like to thank you for the books you sent me. I'm going to be executed May 30th, but I'd like you to know that those books will give me much pleasure in the days remaining to me. Wow. Well, I would just love to know, like, how can listeners get involved in Books Through Bars and learn more about the organization? Um, so if they go to booksthroughbarsnyc.org, they can find out more about how to volunteer. There are limited open hours right now uh, for volunteers to come in because of the pandemic. Um, they can also donate books. Um, books Through Bars actually does a monthly book bundle where they ask people to donate $30 and they, through a local bookstore, Greenlight Books, they're able to order books on in bulk using a uh, retailer's discount. And they select books that are most often requested, but also books that are illuminating. So in June, in May or June, um, they mass ordered copies of the Stonewall Reader um, so that that way they could send out to LGBTQ folks. Um, across the nation who frequently ask for books dealing with queer issues and often there are not enough or there are not enough in the kind of condition that the prisons will accept. Um, so they can go to uh, the Books Through Bars site and they can learn how to come in and volunteer or how to be part of donating to these book bundles that go out to hundreds of people every month or other ways to get involved. Well, Thank you so much for talking with me today, Victoria. I've really appreciated it. Thank you, Abby, so much for covering these issues. I enjoy talking with you, and I hope that your listeners do choose to get involved. That's it for this week's Cityscape. Our music is courtesy of Ben Sound. I'm Abby Dell. Thanks for listening.